Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Most uh, weekends in the summer, my sister and her husband set up a booth at a local farmer's market in Kelowna, British Columbia, and they sell their locally grown fruits and vegetables. Here's a picture of my sister doing just that. They, um, they live on the orchard that he grew up on, and if you were to ask any member of my family where their favorite place in the world is, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure most of us would point to this particular place, to this orchard. Uh, the summers there are the best. Here's a picture of, of the garden. Uh, the orchard is off to the left, but you can just, you just go out and kind of pick what you're going to eat and pick it off the tree, pick it off the garden. And if you've um, ever had the privilege of eating produce just straight out of the garden or straight off the tree, there's just nothing better than that. In fact, uh, recently my wife bought a bag of cherries from the store, and I tried a few, and um, it, they just, it just wasn't right. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to have to wait <clears throat> until I'm back up there some summer and pick those Bing cherries straight off the tree, right off the porch. You know, I, and it's just, I just honestly sometimes have a hard time enjoying store-bought produce. I mean, stuff that's traveled thousands of miles or hundreds of miles just doesn't taste as good as the stuff that's been ripened and just picked right off the tree. Now, when it comes to quality, taste, and even nutrition, there's just nothing better than locally grown. Now, in Jesus' day, everything was locally grown. I mean, most people actually grew the food that they ate. And if they hadn't grown it, they were pretty sure they knew who had grown it. And so Jesus would often use agricultural illustrations to explain how the gospel, the word means the good news about him, how the good news about him would spread and impact the entire world. And so in this series called Locally Grown, we're looking at some of these agricultural examples that Jesus used to describe how this would affect the world and our role in that. And last week, Elliot began this series by talking about how some of the changes that have taken place during the agricultural revolution mirror some of the changes to how we view ourselves and our own role in helping other people discover Jesus. The idea is that just as we have now outsourced farming, for the most part, to the professionals, we have also tended to outsource sharing the gospel to the professionals. The idea for most Christians is that it's, well, it's people like me who have you know, a master's degree in the Bible that are best qualified for explain, explaining these kinds of things to other people. And so kind of like farming, we just, we've kind of outsourced this. But as Elliot said last week, this is one of my favorite quotes from his message last week. He said, God's plan has never been to industrialize change in people's lives. That is so true. You cannot outsource this. One of the main reasons is that every person is unique. And so change can never be mass-produced. It never can be mechanized. It's just one life at a time. And this is why change really occurs best in the context of relationships. And this is why the good news of Jesus transfers best life to life. Not in mass, but life to life. So real change has always been locally grown. The spread of the gospel still rests in the hands of ordinary individuals. Now, the gospel is not a spiritual sales pitch about Jesus. Sometimes people think it's kind of, you know, like we're pitching Jesus. It's not really, that's really not what it is. What the gospel really is, is it's more like a seed. This is the way Jesus described it. 
Turns out it is the most powerful seed of change that this world has ever known. Today I want to examine more closely this particular seed, the seed of the gospel that we are called to carry to our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our school environments and the network of relationships that God has placed us in. So we're going to begin, first of all, by looking at the power of the seed, the power of this particular seed, the seed of the gospel. Here's one of the things that Jesus says about this in Matthew 13, 31 through 32. He, being Jesus, told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is not a a place, it's not a destination, it's, it's a decision to put your life under the rule of God, to make him your king and you his servant, his subject. And that decision never makes the local news. It, it's never a, a big deal widely. And the reason is because it's, it's seemingly a small decision. You really can't even see it because it occurs inside the individual's heart who has made that decision. And in that way, as Jesus is saying, it, it's like a mustard seed in size. It looks really small and insignificant. Here's what a mustard seed looks like. This is the size of a mustard seed, the, the variety that Jesus is talking about. And it was the smallest seed in the area. But depending on the conditions, that seed would grow, when, once planted, would grow into anything from a bush that would be about six feet tall to a tree that could reach as much as 30 feet. Here's a particularly large version of this plant or this tree that was found in North Africa. Now, the thing that really drives the size of the plant that comes out of the seed is not the size of the seed. This is the point Jesus is making. The size of the seed is really irrelevant. It's the, the DNA, the genetic code that's inside that seed that determines what comes out of the seed and the size of impact or the size of the plant that comes from the seed. And so you would, you would think that just a small little decision about Jesus is not really going to make that much of a difference. But it's, it's the code, the genetic code, the truth that's contained in that decision that not only ends up changing that life, but over time can influence all kinds of people and change many, many lives. A few verses later, Jesus identifies himself as the one who who really plants and contains all of the DNA of the seed of the kingdom of heaven. This is what what he says just a few verses later in verse 37. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's the term that he would use to describe himself, the son of man. So Jesus is the one who embodies the power of God, the code, so to speak the power of God to change people, to transform us. Now, like a seed, that is both very simple and very complex. I mean, if you want to go grow, say, for example, tomatoes, you just plant the seed. Now, if you just plant the seed, you know that there's a little more complexity involved after you plant the seed. But if you want to grow tomatoes, it just starts with a simple decision. Go get some tomato seeds, find some dirt, plant them. That's simple. And in the same way, if you want God to forgive you and change you, 
then you just need to plant the seed of Jesus Christ in your life. And that process begins. You need to accept him. That's simple. In fact, in the New Testament, there are many short, simple, seed-sized descriptions of this decision, the decision to plant Jesus into your life. Let me just give you a couple. One is this, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So this is, people may not agree that there's only one God. There's a lot of debate about that now. They may have questions about, well, how do I determine which God is the one true God? But the moment of decision, the the planting moment, is pretty, pretty simple. It just involves two decisions. As it says here, I... I believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God. And I believe that Jesus is the only one who can pay the price to ransom me from my sin and restore my relationship with God. You know, you can say it very quickly. That's just a simple decision. Now, it may be a process to come to that decision, but the moment of decision, the moment of planting, is singular. It's simple. Here's another statement in 1 John 5, 11 through 12. It says, and this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, the testimony that's being referred to is, is all of what's been said in the Bible. The Bible is really a record of people saying, we saw God do this together, and God said this. It's God's revealing himself through the flow of history. And that's, there's a lot of history. A lot of pages, a lot of words in the Bible. But if you want to reduce it all down to its seed form, this is is a summary verse. If you want to boil it all down to this is the testimony, here's what it is. You want eternal life? It's found in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot more to be said about that, but in its seed form, that's it. And that's, well, that's a simple decision. The planting starts with a seed. As I said, that, that's simple, and that's a singular. It's a one-time decision. Plant Jesus into your life. But what occurs after this is fairly complex. You know, a seed becomes a tree when the DNA of that seed is planted. It, it makes its way out from the seed and begins to grow in the soil that it's been planted in. Same thing happens with a person. A follower of Christ grows and changes as the DNA of God's written code breaks out from God's word and into their life, and it begins to change how they live, and they begin to grow. Jesus described this process this way. These were some of his last words before he left in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So a disciple is simply someone who has decided to follow Jesus. They've decided to plant the seed of the gospel of Jesus into their life. That decision, because it's impossible for us to see, is marked publicly by baptism. And we just did a baptism at the beach a few weeks ago. And baptism is a, is a public, but it's a very vivid picture of planting the seed. You know, a person goes into the water and comes back up. It's, it's an image of this person has planted this seed in their life, and this is the planting image 
This is what's going on here. But then, after that occurs, there's a lot of complexity. Because the genetic code of Jesus begins over time to rewrite the codes that we have all been using to build a life. I mean, we all have our own codes. We may not have them written down, but we've picked up ways to handle life. And when you decide to follow Jesus Christ, when you plant that seed, then the genetic code of God begins to rewrite the blueprint for life. You begin to make different decisions based on that. We learn how to, as Jesus said, to obey everything he commanded. We learn to to live by a new code. Now, that's complex. That is not a singular decision. You don't just decide today, you know what, I'm, I'm going I'm to handle my marriage today according to the, what I've read out of the pages of the Bible. And then I'm, I'm, I don't have to make another marriage decision. No, you probably have about five marriage decisions to make today. And then you've got some more tomorrow. And this is the complexity in the flow of life. We have to, over time, learn how to more and more take what God says on a matter and rewrite it on top of and replace what we think on a matter. Now, that takes time. That's complex. That doesn't happen quickly. Now, we can decide to either cooperate with that rewriting process or to resist it. Now, this is why some mustard seeds become just bushes about this tall and others become trees that birds can rest in. What's the difference? The DNA in the seed is exactly the same. The difference is the condition in which that seed has been planted. You know, some people plant Jesus in their lives and then they, they just don't do much with it. They just go back to kind of running the busy routines of their life and, and they don't take much time to consider and read and think about what needs to change. They just plant the seed and kind of go on. And, and their, their, their growth over time is stunted. In fact, sometimes looking at some of these individuals, it's not our call, but you wonder, did they actually make a decision or not? You know, if you plant a seed and nothing ever comes up, you did, did I plant that seed or not? Now, it's not for us to know, but if nothing's done with it, then there's some real questions. Well, was it planted or not? But it takes cooperation for growth to occur. And when a person, though, decides to cooperate with Jesus and they, they start rewriting their life, their decisions, I mean, in every area of life, they start rewriting their decisions based on the code for living that's found in the Bible, the change over time is nothing short of miraculous. It's miraculous. That's the power of the seed. Now let's turn our attention to the purity of the seed. 1 Timothy 6, 20-21, we read this. The Apostle Paul, early church planner, is writing to another pastor, Timothy, and he says this, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Guard what? What, what? what is to be guarded here? Anything that modifies or changes the truth of the faith, of the gospel. This is a warning against altering that genetic code, the, the DNA that has been handed down to us. Ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, when it comes to 
to food and the, the seeds that grow the food that we eat, we are, as a culture, becoming more and more aware of some of the changes and modifications that have been done to what we eat. And that's why if you go now to your refrigerator or your pantry, you're going to see these labels on more and more products. There's all kinds of labels showing up like this, telling you that you know, it's organic, it's non-GMO. And the reason is because there, there's just a growing concern over health. And what's occurred is as the production of food has become industrialized, well, just a number of changes have been made to the process and particularly to the seeds. Let me just give you a couple examples that I thought were pretty interesting. I don't know if you know this, but a spinach gene has been added to a variety of oranges to make them resistant to an orange-killing bacteria. They noticed that these spinaches, you know, the, the bacteria wouldn't attack the spinach, but it would attack the orange trees. So they modified the genetic code. They were able to splice in this spinach gene into the orange. And now this orange-killing bacteria doesn't attack those trees. Here's another example. Genes from an insect-killing protein have been transferred into corn, allowing it to, in a sense, make its own pesticide that kills the insects that used to wipe out corn crops. Now, the result of these kinds of amazing changes have been the increase in productivity. I mean, you can get more and more out of an acre than you ever could before, spend less and less on fertilizer and pesticide, and that's lowered the cost. The term for this is GMO. You're, I'm sure you're all aware of this, genetically modified organism. Now, the benefits, as I said, of altering, altering the DNA of these seeds are obvious. You know, you higher yields, lower cost. And so this is the debate that's going on right now. And I really don't want to step into this debate because people have all kinds of thoughts and feelings about this. The debate is going on about whether these modifications have really any long-term effect on our health. And to be honest, I really don't know. I mean, I've got my own suspicions, but I, I just don't know. You can read a lot of smart people writing on all kinds of sides of this argument. But here's what I do know. More and more people are less and less comfortable with eating genetically modified foods than ever before. I mean, it's something new that's happening. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, the fastest growing segment in grocery store sales are food items with the non-GMO label. That's the fastest growing segment in the food industry. And so what manufacturing discovers, if we can slap that label on our product, sales are going to go up. And so, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this non-GMO label is it's just on everything. You know, it's on kitty litter. <laughs> Who needs non-GMO kitty litter? But, you know, hey, if it's non-GMO, I want the non-GMO, not the, the other stuff. So it just, you know, this is a trend that's going on. So when you start seeing something like Ancient Grains Cheerios, you know that you're looking at a trend, right? <laughs> ancient Grains Cheerios? What happened to the Honey Nut Cheerio thing and the, all the sugar kind of stuff? Well, people are realizing that, you know, what you eat really determines some things. You know, Ancient Grains, if you don't know the term, Ancient Grains reference seeds that have not been genetically modified. They're ancient. They, they haven't been messed with. So Cheerio says, well, let's add some of those and we'll increase sales. So the question is, what does this debate have to do with the seed of the gospel? 
Well, here's where I think it applies. A major rewrite of the moral DNA of our culture is underway. I mean, it's been underway for quite a, quite a while. But what's been happening kind of alongside the cultural moral shifts that have been taking place on many fronts in our culture, there, among the Christian community, there have been numerous efforts to modify the gospel, to make it fit a little better with our changing culture. I mean, not, not everything, just splice in a few different ideas. And the reason to do this is pretty much the same reason that genetic modifications have been done to food seeds. That is to, well, get higher yields. I mean, if, for example, if, if you want to grow a church, then you probably don't want to talk about what the Bible says on sex because that doesn't really fit with our culture right now. So I did a whole series after Easter about what God has restricted and why. And the purpose behind that is because we're not to mess with the seed of the gospel, even though our culture is. So we're going to have to put up with lower yields to stick with the ancient grain, the ancient seed. Another reason for the modification is to kind of lower the cost, you know, just like it lowers the cost of food. You know, when, when you modify the gospel, one of the purposes is just to kind of, you know, the, it, it's, it, it's just a little help. It, you don't really have to follow Jesus in all areas of your life. You know, let's lower the cost so that people will find this more to their liking. Well, but we just can't do that. This is what it's, Paul's talking about. Is we have to guard what's been entrusted to us. You know, the non-GMO food debate is an important one, and I'll leave that for you and your family to figure out what you're going to do. But when it comes to the gospel seed, we are dealing with something far more important than what we eat. That is important, but this is far more important. You know, there is a disease that is eating away at our culture. I mean, you pick any diagnostic tool, whether it's mental health or the growing list of disorders or the decline of the family, and it's clear that the cultural cancer is getting worse. Now, if you are an educator or if you are a parent, you know this. You are on the front line of the carnage that is moving through our culture. If you're a grandparent, you know this. But I think that this just may be a particularly exciting time to be a Christian. Because what has been entrusted to our care in the gospel is the original ancient grain. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think, quite possibly, the reason that there is a growing interest in things like non-GMO and ancient grains because of health, that I think we're on the edge of a, maybe a growing interest in the gospel for the same kind of reason. You know, people are trying to figure out what, what is going on with all these allergies? What's going on with all, physically? And I think there may be, we may be on the edge of people going, what is going on with our culture? What's going on with my kids? What's going on with our marriage? What, what is happening? What, we were supposed to be happier than this. What's happening to us? 
and the modified moral ideas that are now falsely called knowledge in our culture are causing real pain. Now, they don't show up instantly. They show up sometimes decades later. And my prayer is that the damage that is being done by these moral diseases will begin to open up many, many more people to the gospel. And that's why we need to guard the purity of the gospel that has been entrusted to our care. Not by locking it in a vault so that at some point we may be able to bring out the ancient grain and nourish people with it. No, we, we guard it by sticking to what the Bible actually says, not what we might like it to say on a topic, but what it actually says. And then offering the gospel of Jesus Christ as a cure to what this world needs. And that brings us to the last point this morning. That is the price of planting the seed. This is not the price of planting the seed in your life. There is a price for that. This is, I'm talking about planting the seed in the life of another person. John 12, 24 through 25, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, there are really only two things, productive things that you can do with a seed. You can turn it into food, you can eat it, or you can plant it. And it's the same with the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can eat it, you can ingest it yourself, you can allow the, the nourishment of the gospel of Jesus Christ to begin to change your own life. And it will nourish you. That's what happens when you accept the seed of Jesus into your life. But every farmer does both. Some of the seed is eaten. Some of the fruit from the seeds are eaten. But then most of the seeds go back into the ground. And we are called to do both. But when it comes to the planting part in the lives of others, Jesus is talking about the price that it takes to do that. And just like a seed has to die, we have to die. Now, the death he's talking about is not a physical death, but a tougher death in some ways. I mean, a physical death, again, is a moment. There can be a lot of struggle leading up to that moment. But generally, we live a lot more days alive leading up to that. So there's a lot of decisions. So this is not a physical death. This is the death to our own agendas and what we would like and what we would prefer and our own comfort. You know, there's tremendous power that's contained in a seed. As I said, the power is in the genetic codes. But if the seed doesn't die, the power of the seed is never released. It's just code. The same thing is true with the gospel of Jesus. If, if we're not willing to pay a price to get this into the lives of other people, then it's just ideas to them. It's never going to change them. You know, seeds contain a hard shell for protection. In order for the seed to germinate, the shell must be broken. And it's the same with us. You know, we all construct, 
construct shells around us to protect us. And the purpose of our shells is for our comfort. You know, that's the root of the word comfort is fort. It's a very good description. Now, the walls of your fort and my fort may be constructed out of different material. Maybe it's a financial comfort wall. Maybe it's a relationship comfort wall. We're not really comfortable in new and different relationships, so we stick with the six people that we know and trust. Maybe it's just the routines. We just find comfort in running our routines. Now, comfort is not all bad. At times, we really do need the protection of our shell. But if our lives are going to have an eternal impact, we can't stay behind the walls of our comfort. We can't stay in our shells. Because the germination of new life requires the shell of the seed to break. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's a kind of death. You know, the first part of the seed that breaks out is called the radical. This is not a Bible term. This is a botany term. I find that fascinating. It's called a radical. It forms the first root. You know, the word radical means to depart from the unusual. Actually, it's from a Latin word that means the first root. To do something different, that's radical. To leave the confines of your comfort fort, that's radical. And what what will happen is God will challenge us to get out of our comfort zones and plant the gospel. That requires us to stop loving seed life. In a sense, to, to really die to it. So Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, what's wrong with loving life? I mean, in fact, it's one of the most common compliments people pay to others at funerals. They, they really loved life. And that, that's fine. But the question is, we're all at a funeral, so did that save them? No. What Jesus is saying is, you can love life as much as you want. You're going to die like everybody else. The point is, if, if you make this life all about you and all about squeezing every single drop of fun that you can out of life, then you better squeeze a lot because that's all you're going to get. God gave you life not just so you could love it, but that you could plant it for something eternal. And in the process, there's a lot of loving that goes on, but that's not the point. Jesus says, but if you decide instead to hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life. Well, that sounds awful. What does that mean? I got to go around saying, I hate this life. Well, good morning. I hate today. (laughs) No, that's not what it's talking about. What it means is if, if you decide to set aside what you want, to plant the seed of the gospel in another's life, the impact of your life has now just gone beyond you. It's now extended into eternity. But don't expect this to come easily. In order to do this, you're going to have to cross the barrier of doing things that you don't want to do, and maybe even you hate doing. Because we've all got shells. We don't like breaking out of them. Well, to be more honest, we hate breaking out of our shells. Let me give you an example. Last week, uh, Elliot told us about the barbecue box that we're, we've put together 
to help you invite your neighbors and friends who are not Christ followers over to your house for a barbecue. Now, for the last few years here at Seabreeze, we've done what we call a big day barbecue to kick off, you know, the fall season. But this year, we've decided to make the barbecue locally grown in your house and in mine. Why? Well, there are a lot of people that come for the big day barbecue. But primarily, it's for the people in your life and in my life who love food, but they don't love it enough to risk coming to a church for it. Barbecue, that sounds great. At the church, I think I'll pay for mine. And there's a lot of people that are in that category. So that's why we're encouraging all of us to do this in our own homes. Your home is much less threatening than a church. Church is kind of a scary place for some people. Now, let's just get really honest about this. For many of you, and I'll say us, in order to do this, you're going to have to do something that you don't want to do. And dare I say, you hate doing. Now, I know there's some of you that you're, you're, you're ready for a party at any moment, and you're just inviting people all the time. But for some of you who may be a little more on the introvert side like me, you got to do some stuff you hate to do this. You know? Maybe you, um, you hate feeling awkward. And just to invite your neighbors and friends, you're going to have to feel a little awkward. I hate feeling awkward. Or maybe you hate cooking. Well, probably good if you cook. You know, I, I hate giving up. I mean, my life is so busy. I hate giving up a Saturday night or a Friday night or whenever you decide to do it. Or you don't think, I hate spending money. You know, we're providing the, the spices, the rubs, but you've got to buy the meat. You're on the hook for the expensive part. Maybe it's, I hate spending money on that kind of stuff. Or I hate cleaning up the house and getting it all ready for that. I don't know what it is, but this is the kind of thing we all have to do. It's like there's an opportunity to invest in someone who's not a follower of Christ, maybe eventually be able to share the gospel with them, but we're going to have to keep doing things. Oh, I don't want to do that. That's the moment at which you decide, what's, what's my life about, really? Is it about making an impact for all of eternity, or is it about just loving life now? We've got some good friends of ours, my wife and I, who are not Christ followers. In fact, they've made it very clear they have no interest in all of this. But we really care for them. We really love them. And this year, they surprised us by asking both of us if we would be willing to manage their care as they get older. They don't have any family close by. And it, in their words, we are the only ones that they know that they trust. Now, we know that this is a big ask, and they do too. And we know it particularly because three years ago we moved Rebecca's parents here so we could help them. And it's been hard. 
So we're under no illusions about what's involved in this ask. And in my experience over the last three years, helping someone in their older age is, it's complex, it's intense, it's a lot of work, and there's almost never any reward for it. Now, I don't, I don't know that I would say this very often, but I, I think in my heart, to be honest to say, I hate doing it. I know it's the right thing to do. It's the loving thing to do, but man, you know, we have a busy life. And again and again, it's like, oh, oh, we got to do something we don't want to do. But what if... So our first thought was, no way. But what if, just what if, and we've been praying about this, what if God wants us to do this in order for the gospel to go from us to our friends? Now, let's be clear. We are under no illusion that this will produce that. We are under no illusion that they'll accept Jesus. But out of love for them and obedience to God, we told them we'd do it. And they cried. We'd never seen them cry. Now, honestly, I would rather just invite someone to church and have them say, okay, and have them hear me or someone else speak and present the gospel and have them say, well, that's what I want to do and then be done with it. Now, that still happens, and so still invite people to church, and we're, we're, we're still doing that. You never know. But for a lot of people, it's going to take a little more death than that. Because as Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And I really, I don't want to show up before Jesus with my seed intact, saying, well, I loved life. That's not good enough. Every seed can survive for different amounts of time. You know, some seeds can survive for hundreds of years dormant, but they all have a limit. The same thing is true with us. We all have lifespans. What that means is we have a limited time to plant our lives. But to love seed life with all of its walls of comfort is to miss out on all that the seed can become. The power of the seed comes in the planting, not in the eating. So if you haven't already... Maybe do what you hate, pick up a barbecue box on your way out today and start crossing the barriers of things that you don't want to do for the sake of people who are not followers of Christ. Go invite your neighbors and friends, and I hope you have a great barbecue. Let's pray.
Father, you have placed us in neighborhoods and in families and in work environments and school environments so that we might be close to those who are not close to you. And we confess that so often we are we're busy running our seed lives. And it's very rare that we break out of our shells. And God, I pray that you give us a different view of our routines this week, and particularly the people in them. I pray, Father, that you would help us to break out of our shells and carry into this world the one ancient grain that can nourish us back to health. Help us do this, we pray. We ask in the name of the seed of the gospel, you, Jesus Christ. Amen.